oftentimes you see that people know what they believe, but they don't know why they believe it. One of the most psychologically frustrating or even confusing things in my experience in the evangelical church is in context where the churches are, you know, pride themselves on being biblical, 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 biblical. Um, oftentimes with these controversial topics, they're, they have little or no actual interest in what the Bible says. Now, I look, I, that might sound a little harsh and I might not have said that 10 years ago, <laughs> but now it's just it's fascinating how the people that are just red in the face, you know, biblical, biblical, biblical. And then when you go to the text of scripture, it's like deer caught in the headlights. Like, I, doesn't matter. Like, you know, my view is true. It doesn't matter what you say. I'm like, I'm quoting the, the, the book that you claim to be following. And so... In any honest pursuit of the truth and in any journey of faith, there are moments of doubt, questioning, and, and, and re-examination. Sometimes these doubts can be as big as, let's say, doubting the very existence of God. But I think for most people, the, the more frequent and persistent questions about the Christian faith they experience are likely about details in the Christian story. or. Or maybe we could say the Christian story they are familiar with. A particular point of what we might call doctrine or, or maybe a question about salvation or the Bible may not on the surface seem as monumental as a question about the very existence of God. But the question behind our questions about things like hell or human sexuality is ultimately a question about what this God is like. And in some ways, this is just as, if not even more important than the question of whether God exists. Because what good is it believing in some sort of generic creator if we don't truly believe this creator to be good or trustworthy or of any daily significance in our lives and choices? That's why I'm so thankful for people who get this and are leading the way in helping people pursue the questions they're afraid to ask aloud in church. And Dr. Preston Sprinkle, my guest today, is one of these kinds of people. Pre Preston is a New York Times bestselling author, professor, and the president of the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. He's got a PhD in New Testament from Aberdeen University in Scotland, and he, he's authored books uh, including Fight, A Christian Case for Nonviolence, and Erasing Hell, co-authored with Francis Chan, and People to be Loved, Why Homosexuality is Not Just an Issue. So I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Dr. Preston Sprinkle. So Preston, uh, thank you again for jumping on the conversation. I know there's going to be so many people that um, if they aren't familiar with your work, uh, once they hear a little bit of your interest, the areas you've been exploring and you've been helping people explore, I, I, I think I, I'm, I'm probably going to lose podcast listeners <laughs> to go over and actually start listening to yours, yours instead. So, you know, there's probably also people that are going to be tuning in who are familiar with your work and who may likely know you from books you've written on subjects like hell, human sexuality, LGBT issues in the church, and nonviolence. These aren't exactly um, subjects that are going to make you the most popular theologian out there. No matter what you say, you're probably going to upset somebody. Inevitably, someone's either going to think you're a heretic or not progressive enough. So 
you jump into this. Why not just tell people how to have their best life now? (laughs) Why, why tackle subjects? Why tackle subjects like these? I ask my question that every day. And so does my wife. She's like, you know, why, why, why do you do this to yourself? You know, I, um, I don't know if I had a, a real like strong conscious drive toward these kind of topics. I just, you know, I'll get interested in a topic and, and largely, you know, it's because people are talking about it. It's something that people are wrestling with. And, and I see people on both sides, not really listening to each other. And, and then I'm constantly wanting to know what, what does the Bible say? Like, I, I know what I grew up believing, but a lot of times you grew up believing stuff that you can't justify from the actual text of scripture. So that's been my kind of MO is, is, you know, taking controversial topics that people are wrestling with, that I'm like, where do I land on this? You know, well, I don't know, but I want to follow the Bible. So I go back to the Bible. And oftentimes you see that people know what they believe, but they don't know why they believe it. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that's been one of the most psychologically frustrating or even confusing things in my experience in the evangelical church is in context where in context where the churches are, you know, pride themselves on being biblical, 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 biblical. Um, oftentimes with these controversial topics, they're, they have little or no actual interest in what the Bible says. Now, I mm. look, I, that might sound a little harsh, and I might not have said that 10 years ago. <laughs> but now it's just it's fascinating how the people that are just red in the face, you know, biblical, biblical, biblical. And then when you go to the text of Scripture, it's like deer caught in the headlights. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, my view is true. It doesn't matter what you say. I'm like, I'm quoting the, the, the book that you claim to be following. And so um, I, I think early on that, that just it fascinated me so much that, now, oftentimes when I tackle a controversial topic, I have two, I guess, not, maybe not goals, but two things that I'm interested in. Number one, finding out, you know, what does the Bible say about this topic? And number two, um, trying to get people to actually go back to the text, you know, uh, yeah. so that we're not just relying on previous, you know, assumptions and tradition, you know, to form our beliefs. So uh, yeah, I think with no, the nonviolence, that, that's where... That's when it really uh, came to light for me. And look, I, and I don't need you know you or my audience to hold you know the same position. No, that no, I no. Hold, yeah, that, that holds you. But it, it was fascinating that when I engage in questions like, "Does Jesus want Christians to ever use violence to confront evil?" It, it's like we would close our Bibles, set them aside and come up with all these scenarios about people breaking into our home and raping our children and wives, you know? And I'm like, look, those are, that's really important. But I mean, you would agree that we need to form our ethical beliefs from the Bible, right? Not from hypothetical experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm biblical. I'm biblical. But man, if somebody jumps in and rapes my wife, I'm like, Hey, maybe you're right. Maybe you're not. Maybe Jesus wants you to kill the guy. Maybe not. But we, can we at least agree that we need to ask Jesus through the revealed scriptures, what he might have to say about this. And then we address the scenario that you're talking about. And it's like people just, it's like water on a circuit board. They just couldn't actually go back to the Bible and say, here's biblically why I believe what I believe. And here's why I would kill the guy trying to rape my wife and kids or whatever. So I think it was that, and I'm getting long winded here, but I think it was that, um, it was initially that the nonviolence conversation, they kind of like threw me off kilter a little bit. I'm like, man, I just, are we actually trying to be biblical or not? Again, I'm not saying that if you're biblical, you'll agree on nonviolence, but just methodologically, 
we should be in the habit of going to scripture to form our beliefs. And that's not always the case. No. And you grew up, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you you grew up in an evangelical tradition, right? Or did you come to faith later? Yeah. Yeah. So like, was this, was that particular subject, one of the first subjects for you where you're like experiencing cognitive dissonance as you read the scriptures and you're like, what's going, what's going on here? I mean, maybe just if you can tell everybody a little bit about your background as an evangelical, because I think uh, as far as I understand, and we've, you know, we've maybe have had some like online fake digital interactions. This is the first time we've actually had conversation (laughs) together. You know, I I come from a very charismatic background, right? And it was... um, uh, non-denominational. In fact, by the time my church got into the '90s, it was probably full-blown word of faith movement. You know, prosperity gospel. So that that's where I came from. And so, you know, there was there was quite a few things in that that I had to 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 brush up against as I started to explore the scriptures and experience cognitive dissonance in in many ways. But uh, as I understand, that's not necessarily your background, is it? Your 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 particular strand of evangelicalism is it probably more on the reformed end, right? It, it was non-denominational, okay. reformed-ish, uh, Baptistic-ish. You know, um, <laughs> yeah. you, you know the world I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, Bible churches. Yeah. Uh, EV free. I went to an EV free church yeah. uh, growing up. I, I wasn't. I didn't really walk with the Lord until I was like 19. So even though that was the environment I kind of grew up in, it wasn't. Um, I wouldn't say it was as directly formative in my thinking or behavior, maybe just indirectly, you know, it's not like yeah. I really paid attention to sermons or, you know, um, you know, I was just, you know, kind of dragged to church and tried to live, a, tried to live a decent life, but wasn't really following Jesus. But so after I'm 43 now, so at 19, I became a Christian and, and really uh, dove into Christian academic kind of theology. So for, for me though, so yeah, that environment, I'll, well, I'll never forget as a high schooler, hearing about a Christian professor at the local junior college. And when, when people would talk about this Christian professor, they would always say, well, yeah, he's, I think he's, yeah, he's kind of a Christian, but he's a pacifist. And I remember, I don't know who told me this or where I got it from, but my, I still remember the feeling of, oh, well, he can't really be a Christian because if you really love Jesus, you can't be a pacifist. Like, to be a pacifist is to be a non-Christian. Mm. Christians aren't pacifists. And I, I can't pinpoint where I got that from, but that, that was sort of in the air. I carry that with me all through Bible college, seminary, uh, PhD studies, even, you know, like, um, and I, I never really wrestled with the question of violence. It was just assumed that, you know, Christians kill bad right. people and you right. just <laughs> let, let the bad people run havoc on the, you know, wreck havoc on the world. So, um, but I never, I, yeah, I never even considered like, what does the New Testament say about this? <laughs> Until I was teaching a class at Cedarville University. This is about 2008. Cedarville University is a conservative Christian school in Ohio. Um, uh, and I remember teaching a class on ethics, and one of the ethical questions we were wrestling with was violence and warfare and just war theory versus pacifism. And, I, and at that point, I was my posture was more like, I wanted to give any view a fair shake. That, that was kind of my posture at that point. So I wasn't holding on to you know, just war theory or, or more, you know, violence is okay. But, um, but I remember going to that class saying, okay, we'll I have to at least entertain, you know, the pacifist perspective and yeah. maybe I'll play devil's advocate with the students and, <laughs> you know, and ask myself, what are the biblical arguments for this? And as I started to wrestle with that in my preparation, I was like, dang, man, how, how come no one ever showed me these verses? How, how come I didn't even notice these verses? And, 
you know, was an absolute command, not situational. And what if, what if violence towards somebody and love are incompatible? Like, you know, I'm wrestling with mm. this and like, the more I dug into it, I was like kind of confused going into it. I was like, you know, wow. You know, challenging my students, like, Hey, we really got to wrestle with this. Like, look at these arguments. And then, you know, most of them are kind of like, no, no way. You know? And I'm like, well, counter the argument. Don't just disagree with it. Like disagreement isn't refutation. You know, that was one of the big ethical uh, themes. Like just yeah. because you hold to a view, you can't just disagree with it. You have to show why the evidence to support the view you're disagreeing with is insuperior, inferior to the evidence that you hold to support uh, the view you think is superior. You know, like right, this is right. basically kind of mathematics, if you will. Um, and I was kind of frustrated. This is I could tell that they they didn't want pacifism to be true, and and I, mm. I and why I is that? that? I don't. You know, obviously, like we're brushing up against, you know, we've got these narratives, you know, we've got the, the Christian meta narrative, but we also, especially yeah. in America, have this American narrative where, yeah. right, our story is that violence is what sets us free, right? Yeah. It's like the, yeah. it's rebelling against the, the King of England, it's the revolution, it's the Boston uh, massacre, it's Star Wars, right? It's like the little guys fighting against the big guys. You know, and th those 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 stories come into collision, and uh, yeah. and there's this dissonance, and now you have to kind of like choose a story, right? It, it, it exactly, and it, you know, I asked why is that? I think it's the fish in the water thing, where it's like the fish doesn't know what water is; he's just so surrounded by it. And I do think that, and this is a main underlying theme of my book. It wasn't it was it was about violence, but I mean, it was also about the you know the the wide open all-encompassing sea of a cultural narrative that by far has had more power in shaping our view on violence, pacifism, just war, um, versus the Bible. And this is, so now looking back, I'm like, oh, of course people would be, you know, already have their view made up in mind, regardless of whether they can justify it from scripture. Like that's just, it's just tight. Like we are products of our culture, whether it's a church right, culture right. or a secular culture, which is usually both and, you know, um, and, and that's what I've seen. I think that's why, um, you know, people race to these scenarios because that those scenarios of somebody coming in to hurt you, you know, carpet bomb their whole village and, and just that mentality of don't you dare mess with me. That is just part of the very fabric of our American culture, especially if you're a guy, especially if you grow up right. in a, even a moderate or even Republican kind of, um, um, uh, background that that's just the 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 air you breathe and it takes a while to kind of uh detox <laughs> detox yeah. yourself from from that air and again maybe that view's right okay maybe right right right, right. maybe right. you know but at least acknowledge that you've been persuaded toward that view from so many other outside forces than just simply going to jesus and saying what do you think i should do in this or that situation yeah. So what was, what was the name of the, if people were going to read more from you on that, that particular subject, yeah. what, what are the books that you've written that they should check out? So the book I wrote is called fight and the subtitle is a Christian case for nonviolence. And it, it basically is just a, you know, uh, for theologians out, you know, it's a biblical theology, uh, whether or not his followers should use violence. I didn't really get into the question of can God use violence and right. You know, whatever. Yeah. It's, it's more like, well, primarily Jesus, but I mean, you got to go back in the old Testament, yeah. you know, is it 
ethically right to use evil to conf- or use violence to confront evil. And and honestly, I I shifted and changed even through the very writing of the research of, of the book. And um, what what shocked me and this is I went through the whole Bible, Genesis, Revelation. And and then even I have a chapter that goes into the early church, the first 300 years of the church. And that, it was that chapter that really sent me spinning because the early church leaders were incredibly diverse in their beliefs. Right. It was like, of course, Christians should never kill like ever. Right. <laughs> so, so that to me, and again, I, I want to base my view on the Bible. OK, so that, but it was just. Yeah, but still that so many early church leaders were reading the scriptures in a way that was just radically different than how most American 21st century Christians are reading it. Um, but yeah, so, so the book is Fight, uh, A Christian Case for Nonviolence. Yeah, and those that are listening to and maybe you're just jumping in because you're familiar with Preston's work. This is a subject I covered. I don't remember the exact podcast episode, but you can also check out, you know, there there might be some slight variation between Preston and, uh, and mine, Preston and I's perspective on this, but you can check out um, I think the podcast was entitled um, God of War? Question <laughs> mark. Um, so uh, if you guys want to check that out, I'll do a little survey on the, those three positions. Holy War, uh, Just War, and Pacifism. And to be honest, right, like Holy War is really the position. It's not even so much Just War. I, I argued this in the podcast that, I mean, even if we could get people... And this was this podcast was based on a paper I'd written in, in my master's program. But uh, if we could even get people to the table to at least have a conversation between just war and pacifism, uh, that would be a huge win. <laughs> well, I, if Christian, if American Christians actually followed the heart or just just war theory, right? Then I would like to, you know, as I said in the book, you know, ju- actual just war theory and, and pacifism or not. I don't like the term pacifism. Right. Say nonviolence. Yeah. Um, they're, they're kind of a sneaky theory on paper says, you know, war is so bad, so evil, so terrible that it should be used as an absolute last re- resort when all other means have been exhausted. I'm like, well, yeah. that's pretty awesome. Like, we still may disagree on whether it should be a resort at all, whatever. But if if you see it as this is horrible, this is terrible, this is going to wreak havoc on people, the land, you're in, then oh, I could definitely live with that. That is not the posture of Americans. Americans no. is oh, if you if you you want to, you want to, you know, bomb us? Well, I'm going to just go over and just bomb the hell out of your entire, you know, city and the surrounding city. You know, it's like fight back with twice as much power. Well, wait a minute. That actually violates just work criteria of, of initiating war based on like retaliation or ulterior motives or using excessive force beyond what's necessary. And so, yeah, I am. I, I, I'm perfectly at home with somebody who follows actual just work theory. Right. Right. Culture, especially American evangelicalism, and I will say, especially American evangelicalism, is not just advocates of just war theory. I think they're profoundly militaristic um, in how they view society, the enemy, and, and so on. I think that not only affects how you view warfare, but affects how you treat your neighbor who's not talking to you well, or somebody else who looked at you wrong. But mm. yeah, that's so. Uh, you know, you said at nineteen, um, you have this. Um, 
maybe, I don't know if you want to use this term conversion experience, or you, you became a follower of Jesus at 19. And then you, you kind of threw something in there that I want to revisit, because I don't think it's normal for most people's experiences. You just sandwiched right in there, like, when I turned 19, I uh, became a Christian, and I wanted to jump into academic theology. <laughs> I don't think that's everybody's experience. Um, so, so what was it uh, about your own experience of becoming a follower of Jesus, or whatever terminology you want to use, that made you go, boy, I want to, I want to follow this into this specific path. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I did kind of gloss over that. So <laughs> I, unlike, unlike you, I did not have a charismatic background at all. Um, it was pretty anti-charismatic. Uh, and even in my own life, and I don't hold to that position anymore. I would be charismatic on some level. Um, but I, in my own personal narrative, I've had very, very few, like, whoa, the hand of God, you know, and God spoke to me and did this, did that. Like, I just haven't had, and not, in, in no way denying that experience of others, but just hasn't been my experience. However, I did have what I would, I wouldn't call it a miracle, uh, but I would say a clear, clear evidence of God working in my life right after I uh, decided to really follow Jesus. I prayed the prayer, or I prayed James 1, 5, you know, if anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask me and I will give it generously or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Now I, I didn't read a book until I was 17. I hated to study, hated oh, to read. Same here. Write. Same here. Oh, like I was an athlete, played baseball. Yep. Yep. Um, and you can, I mean, it was so much work to sit in my desk for like 20 minutes and try to study for a test or something. Almost overnight when I prayed that prayer, I had this uncontrollable desire to want to sit in my closet and read my Bible for like seven hours and just wow. study and do word. So I don't, to me, that was clear evidence of God working. And again, I would say that about maybe three other things in my life in the last 30, each 40 years, you know, like I don't, I don't use that flippantly here. It was clear. Yeah. So yeah. Like your appetites, your appetites and desires just suddenly were transformed. Transformed like unilaterally. Yeah. Um, and so I honestly, I, I, I actually found out a couple years later that you can actually go to a a thing called a Christian college where you can major in Bible, like you could study the Bible and that can be your major and you get graded on study the Bible. I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, this is like a dream come true. <laughs> so I went to um, a conservative college called master's college now called master's university is John MacArthur school. Yeah. And um, I remember the first day of class. They're pretty charismatic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 A bunch of holy rollers out there handling <laughs> snakes and right, right. <laughs> um, and uh, the first day of class, you know, I got done at like noon. I had like three classes in the morning and I raced to my dorm and studied for the next eight hours and completed all my homework and like for the next week or something. Cause so I was like, I just, that's all I wanted to do is like, Oh, I can't believe my homework. The thing I used to hate is studying the Bible. It was just, I would, yeah, I just could not get enough of it. And that took me on into seminary. And then I was like, hey, I want to be a professor at a Christian college. I want to teach the Bible at a Christian college because, you know, pastors only get to preach one day, one day a week. And, I, you know, if you're a professor, you get to preach five days a week. So um, and you get to wrestle with, you know, more academic stuff that you can't really do on a Sunday morning sermon. So I was just thrilled to death to, to go be a professor. And people and people were trying to discourage me saying, well, you got to go get a Ph.D. in Bible. I'm like. Wait, I can get a PhD in this stuff. I'm like, Sweet. what's the catch? You know, well, it costs tons of money. I'm like, all right, well, I'll figure that out. But so yeah, there was no. I remember just could not wait to go do a PhD and 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 at that time it was well, I did it in New Testament and early Judaism. Um, 
so yeah, that that was my so my whole trajectory has been just a massive desire and passion to want to know mm. what does what does God say in the Bible, you know. <laughs> mm. um, I want to talk a little bit. You know, I I think I've noticed, and you, I think you even explicitly say that this is this is part of your your calling. You know, Barna Barna research from two years ago revealed that uh, among young adults who were connected and actively involved in church in their teenage years, but left the church in their early adult years. That 30, 36% of them said that the church wasn't a place they felt they could ask their most pressing life questions. And, and, and nearly, nearly a fourth of them said they had serious intellectual doubts about their faith. And then 35% of them, I'm throwing a lot of numbers out here for people, but 35% of them said that they were turned off by Christians who acted like they knew all the answers. It, it was... It would certainly be my own anecdotal experience, not just in evangelical churches where, again, I've grown up in, I've worked in all my life, but also in much of like K through 12 Christian education. This would possibly be true even at the um, post-secondary level in some cases and popular Christian media that we've, we've developed this culture that's focused more on teaching people what to think instead of how to think. And, and as a result, uh, people head into their adult, early adult years with these deep, unanswered questions, and then have no real idea about how to even go about answering their questions. Uh, do you think that's a fair analysis? And, and what, do you, what do you make of that data from Barna? I, oh my gosh, where do I start? First of all, in my anecdotal, I've read the same statistics, and I would very much agree. Well, they are what they are. Right. Um, but in my anecdotal experience, I, I have found the same thing. I get so many listeners on my podcast who, you know, my podcast, I, I oftentimes either interview people or I get, I just answer questions from my listeners. They'll send in questions and I address them. It could be anything. I literally, there's no question that's off the table. Um, I talk about we, the other podcasts. We talked about, you know, um, uh, sexual fetishes. We talked about, um, cross-gender identity, you know, issues that people are wrestling with. We talk about anything, literally anything. There's not a topic that we don't talk about. Talk about marijuana and, and politics and everything. Um, and the common response I get is, thank you for addressing my question. I can't even ask this in church. And I'm like, what? That just doesn't, that, that just is so bizarre to me. Like, I, I understand in certain church environments where certain answers would be looked down upon. <laughs> right. But right. just to raise a question, like ignoring a question doesn't make the question go away. It just makes the person go away with their question. So do you want to answer the question or do you want somebody else to answer their question? Either way, they're going to find a place to ask their question. Like I just... And then, and then they don't seem to know, uh, again, this is my anecdotal experience. It's not true of every place, but they they don't seem to know how to even go about to find the answers. It's, it's like, uh, you know, they've, they've never been trained in the process of how to think or how, you know, some theologian that the, the pastor is deriving much of their, you know, perspective from went about doing their research and due diligence to try to find answers to these deep questions about God and faith, and not just like trivial points of doctrine. None of it's trivial because, you know, at the end of all of it, is this, you take a subject, you know, and I want to talk about this a little bit, take a subject like hell, for example, right? And someone might just look at that, and we could have a discussion and go, well, you know, that's a nice, uh, you know, piece of theological uh, fun you guys are participating in, or, you know, just picking apart some point of doctrine. But behind that, 
no matter what people believe, leads them to some deeper question, a question about what God is really like. And then in, People do not feel equipped to actually go, I have this picture of God based on maybe something I believe about the Christian story. I'm not sure about this. I don't even know where to begin. And then, boy, there's so many wolves out there that are trying to sell deconstruction, and they have no positive path for reconstruction. It's like... There's a lot of stuff out there capitalizing on people in our generation. And I, I'll say our generation. You're a little bit older. I'm 35. But in our generation, uh, people really going through this deep deconstruction, and they go, I don't even know where to begin, but some, I just feel like i got to tear the whole house down. Um, how, do you, how do you go well, about— a, Go ahead. That's what happens—if if the church doesn't create space where people can ask those questions— that's just going to fester and eat at them and get them frustrated and will contribute to an unhealthy deconstructive process with that person. And and you've read the books, I'm sure of, you know, ex Christians and people leaving the church. Oftentimes, you know, they end up going to a place where now they're radically opposed to Christianity or at the very least radically liberal or whatever. And they conservatives get all mad. I'm like, well, you kind of made them that way. (laughs) Like you didn't create space for them to ask questions or even come up with answers that are maybe, you know, maybe different than yours, uh, but aren't like heretical. <laughs> um, well, you throw, you even use a word like heretical. How would somebody even be able to, I'm not, seriously, I, I that, yeah. no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you used that word. Cause I mean, honestly, if you're a Protestant evangelical in some way, shape or form, you're a heretic to somebody else. Right. I mean, right. Yeah. But right. It, we, we use it, we use a word like that. And I don't even know if, your average person, you know, going to church on Sunday morning, or they, they've gone to some sort of Christian schooling, or even, you know, there's there's people tuning into this podcast that is similar to yours, that they, they come as just spiritual seekers. So I realize this is a little bit of like inside baseball talk, but um, they go looking for answers, and they're told things like, well, that was heretical, that one's heretical, and but there's no criteria or rubric that they've yeah. clearly been exp- that's clearly been to explain to them for establishing well, what is true and how do we figure this out so can we just take like as like a case study take a subject like hell for example which you've you've written pretty extensively about i, I think if you were to take the caricature of the evangelical christian message it's it's often sounded like and again this is a caricature but it sounded like God's morality can't stand your personal immorality. So unless you sign off on a doctrine contract that you believe these certain things about Jesus, you will spend eternity in a state of pain and torment infinitely worse than the Holocaust. <laughs> I, I mean, that's—I mean, that, nobody explicitly st- says that, but that's often the inferences. And I know you get those sorts of questions from people because they feel comfortable asking them to you. And, and it seems like that sort of thing is easier to swallow— when you're surrounded in a church or a, a, a Christian school by people who believe those same things, but then then people get exposed to a wider world of people out there who hold to wildly different beliefs and, and even come from other religions, and it makes them go, uh, wow, what do I do? Is this, I mean, is this person going to be eternally tormented? And so they start this process of maybe unraveling or deconstructing but they don't know the method or rubric that they should try to find the truth. Do you have a recommendation? Like, what do you do? Is there a specific, 
you know, to use some philosophical terminology here, is there a specific epistemological methodology that you should, that you'd say Christians or any seeker of the truth should use in order to find the truth? Paul, that, I mean, this is one of the main questions I've been wrestling with for the past couple of years, at least. How do you determine, for, you know, you know, the categories, you know, like a primary theological doctrine that you need to believe in to be a Christian, that is, if you don't believe in it, you're a heretic, versus secondary, secondary kind of doctrines that ah, Christians can agree to disagree on these, but these aren't like essential to the gospel or to the faith. And you hit the nail on the head. It's not so much, well, it, it's not only which doctrines are primary and secondary or which behaviors are primary and secondary, but how do we know? How do we determine what is primary and secondary? And this is where it gets so difficult. Um, some people say, oh, well, we go to the early church creeds. The early church creeds, you know, the Creed of Nicaea, the Apostles' Creed, these are these are the primary things every Christian must believe, and you're a heretic if you don't believe them. Okay, that I think that's I used to use that as kind of a default. The only problem is even the early church creeds were not created in a vacuum. Like they had their own, you know, second, third, fourth century context where there yeah. were certain issues that they were combating and wrestling with, you know. And philosophical presuppositions, right? I mean, they're oh, they're they're in yeah. a certain philosophical, especially Hellenistic context, yeah. right? Which has a yeah, certain right? metaphysical yeah. understanding. Yeah, like they, they had a kind of Neoplatonist mindset of, you know, dissecting the essence of God. What is what is God, you know, and which is very non kind of Hebraic. I mean, the Old Testament would talk more about, you know, who is God, not what is God, you know, in terms of his essence and what percentage is he of this and that. And um, so, yeah, and those aren't those aren't good or bad. It's just that's they're contextual, like the questions that they were addressing through these creeds were a different set of questions that we're addressing today. So for instance, so the, you know, maybe we'll get to the sexuality marriage conversation. Some people say, look, the early church didn't even have a statement about marriage. So say, you know, if you, if you endorse same sex marriage and that's a secondary issue, like, you know, the early church just wasn't even concerned about that. I'm like, okay, but why weren't they concerned about it? Because they didn't see the meaning of marriage, the definition of marriage as an important thing to, you know, codify, or was it just that in their certain situational context, nobody was even debating that. Like even the heretics believed in what we now call traditional marriage. So there was no need to put it, you know, in in a... uh, In the creedal statement or something, yeah. Because it was such a given. There's lots of ethical norms that aren't in the creed. So, and, and that raises another question. You know, a lot of the creeds or a lot of the things that we consider primary to the Christian faith, a lot of them are, uh, um, are matters of orthodoxy, not orthopraxy. Orthodoxy right, meaning right, right. right belief. What do you cognitively sign off on? So what doctrinal statement can you sign at the bottom and say, I assent to these doctrines that are written on this paper? That's how many Christians, especially in Protestantism, have you know kind of thought about primary issues that we, you know, hold to, and if you don't hold to it, you're a heretic. But I don't know when I, and this is something I've been looking at more recently. When I look at the the Bible as a whole, there seems to be a much greater emphasis on orthopraxy, right living, um, evidence that Jesus really is Lord of your life. Like you don't. And again, I'm, I'm not, and I don't want to pit the two against against each other. No, I'm not no. saying one's more important, but if we if we were going to have a kind of a statement of, you know, th- these are primary for the Christian faith, and these might be more secondary. I think those 
if we, if we are wanting to be extra biblical, I think we should at least at least integrate behavior and assent. Maybe even have more behavioral statements while people are will be wrestling with you know uh, believing in this or believing in that. Um, well, you've mentioned something interesting, right? So obviously, if you're coming at this conversation and you grew up in an evangelical context or, or Protestant context, you're, you know, the, the first thing that you would probably do if you're going to try to figure out something like hell or human sexuality or what does the, the Bible teach? I mean, the first question you have, right, is what does the Bible teach? Yeah. But then you've you've mentioned some things like creeds or even mentioned earlier how there was maybe even uh, discussion about what should be in the canon of Scripture. And, you know, traditionally Protestants, especially modern evangelicals, have maybe not placed a high regard on the value of, like, church history and tradition in figuring this stuff out. What do you make of something like, uh, you know, when you when you go in, deep into research mode here and you're like, boy, I've just brushed up against something in the Scriptures, or I heard somebody give a, an answer to a, a deep question. I don't know what I think about that. And you start going through your own process. Do you do you follow something like, you know, some people call it the Wesleyan quadrilateral or, you know, at, at my seminary, at Bethel Seminary, they, they, they simply just call it the evangelical method where you have scripture, tradition, reason, and experience all in this sort of like tension together. And, you know, I think an evangelical emphasis is the supremacy of scripture, but you know, we all, as we've talked about earlier, we have this interpretive lens by which we come to the scriptures. So is that something, you know, maybe you have a different rubric or what do you think about that Wesleyan quadrilateral of scripture, tradition, reason, and experience? Yeah, I like it. I think it's, I think it's solid. And yeah, the evangelical method is, is kind of, you know, mirroring that to some extent. I, I don't know if I have a kind of a step-by-step method, uh, but what you said is you said something so important. Obviously, or maybe it's not obvious to a lot of people, but obvious to me, you know, the, the scripture is my ultimate authority. Like I'm, I'm very, I may not be conservative in some areas, but th- this is one area where, where I am, you know. And, and why, why is that? Um, I mean, without, I mean, we could have, you know, a whole other podcast on that, but in like a sentence or two, what, what informs that sort of, um, it's a presupposition, right? You know, like this is, this, this holds authority. Yeah, but I, I would even say that the religion that I've been baptized into, Christianity, is has always been a a book not book centered. That sounds no. Um, yeah, but, I understand but scripture you're scripture has always played a a significant role in determining uh, morality, belief, our view of God. Um, some people like to say, "No, it's all about Jesus." Well, obviously, it's all about Jesus, but if I said, you know, Jesus hated the poor and didn't like marginalized people, you would say, no. I'm like, well, how do you know? How, how, why do you disagree with me? And they say, well, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I'm like, well, I agree. Right, but you just exactly. have the scripture exactly. <laughs> as your ultimate kind of the, the thing behind the thing behind the thing to um, tell us about your view of Jesus. So at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's um, yes, experience plays a role. Yes, tradition plays a role. But all of those, we're, we're going to at least make an attempt to submit those to uh, the text of scripture. Now here, what you said is really important. While scripture is the ultimate authority, we access the truth embedded in scripture through human, humanly fallible interpretation, which is shaped by tradition, reason, and experience. 
Um, so it's our interpretive lenses that does that makes it sometimes a bit challenging to rightly access the 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 absolute truth that's embedded in scripture. So I, I like how N.T. Wright frames you know the role of the reader versus you know the role of absolute truth that's in scripture. Yes, we you know I believe in absolute truth; it's there revealed in scripture, but. When we access absolute truth through interpretation, that gets a lot more messy. You know, to, to use an example, um, it took me, well, a few, about five, well, I guess it's like 10, 10 years ago, I, ca- I, I, I came to the realization, or I, I came to first recognize that God uses all females in delivering his people in the first five chapters of Exodus. Like the book of Exodus is all about deliverance. It's where we get, you know, freedom from slavery and, and the part of the Red Sea. Like it's, it's, a, it's hugely formative for how God delivers. Well, if you read the first few chapters, God is using exclusively female human agents as he's delivering his people. Hmm. Well, why did I, how did I get a PhD in Bible and a master's in Bible and, an, and a BA in Bible and was teaching the Old Testament for a few years before I even recognized that. Well, probably because I'm a man. <laughs> like, <laughs> and yes, it, and yes, it was a biblical, you know, a, a, sorry, female Christian scholar who kind of pointed that out. Yeah. He's like, well, every woman, you know, especially raised if they're raised in more of a, a, a male centric culture, is going to cling to that pack. How, how could you not see that? I'm like. I don't know. I just never, I never really paid attention to it. So that's just, I mean, a concrete example of how there could be something that's just glowing in the text. Hmm. And yet our personal experience, our background, even things like our socioeconomic status, our ethnicity, our gender, whatever could, um, could cloud our interpretive lenses and, and, and prevent us from seeing things as clearly as others, whereas, or, or vice versa. You know, again, if you're a female reading that passage, your lenses aren't cloud, clouded. It's the opposite. Like your femaleness has probably drawn you to that passage in 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 ways that are, you know are more challenging for a guy. Mm. So that's uh, so interesting. Uh, you know, I, I hear a lot of people. You know, when it comes to some, something like that, where we we want to have. Um, we want to check our own cognitive biases, right? Which is probably one of the most powerful psychological forces in us, right? Yeah. Is that is is our own confirmation bias yeah. that we want to have our view of the world affirmed because it creates if it gets challenged, it's a, it creates this destabilization in us, right? Um, I think one of the interesting things that I and there's a lot of boogeyman stuff about postmodernism, and so this isn't like a a pro postmodernism or anti, but I do think one of the interesting contributions of some of postmodern thought is to get us to look at our our interpretive lenses. Right? There's this. I actually think it, in in its best form, you know, postmodern thought can take very seriously the issue of sin, right? And the the issue that sin corrupts our ability to see especially when we're in positions of, of power where we don't often have our ability to see challenged, right? So for you to be able to go and be like, man, I, I never saw this in Scripture until I actually allowed myself to hear another voice that came from a different perspective is amazing. I mean, this is why it's so important to uh, always, like, don't just read 
your Bible in private. Like, mm. <laughs> you know, you, you need to be in constant dialogue with people who are bringing different ex- a different experience and interpretive lens to the text, and maybe they will see something that you that you didn't that you're kind of blind to. Now, I, I agree. I, I, I one of the blessings of post postmodernism. I don't say that often, but one of the blessings yeah. of postmodernism <laughs> is that it has um, drawn attention to the role of the reader in. Now they would say in determining truth. Right, right. Like the There's the difference. There's the difference. Determines yeah. truth. Whereas I would say the reader. The role of the reader is important in how they access the truth. So I still would maintain absolute truth, but postmodernism has rightly drawn attention to the the complexity of how we access truth. And again, they're going to say, you know, the, the the reader just simply determines the truth. It determines the meaning of the text, and that's where I would say that's going too far. But um, yeah, but yeah, we don't. There is no view from nowhere where everybody just kind of comes at the exactly. text, the blank slate, and, and right. reads it without bias. I think one of the best perspectives I heard on this was uh, or read on this was from um, J.W. McClendon in his uh, whatever the third volume of his systematic theology is. I think it's called Witness, and in it, you know he's he's a little bit more postmodern modern inclined, even probably more so than I'm ultimately comfortable with. But he talks about how this can actually be an incredible benefit to the church because the church is always had these arguments about trying to find the one true stream that we can trace back to the apostolic witness. And he's like, good luck figuring that thing out. I mean, that's probably a noble task. And we do, like Paul said, if anybody preaches a different gospel to you, even if it's angels, let them be accursed. So, I mean, that is our goal. Like, we want biblical faithfulness. We want to be in keeping with the early apostolic witness, right? But his perspective is interesting because he goes, one, you're not going to figure that thing out. You know, we're, we're 2,000 years removed. And, and secondly, maybe it's an opportunity, maybe unity in Christ is maybe what Jesus had prayed for in John 17, that we would all be one, is not that we would come under like one ring to rule them all, one interpretive ring to rule them all. Happy, you know, post-Tolkien reading day here. Um, but instead, we would actually be able to see that each perspective might contribute to something that we've missed about this infinite God. That's a paraphrase, you know? So, I, I, for example, I again, I grew up very charismatic background, and when I started my initial years of teaching, um, I was the only non-Reformed guy on our staff at the, the, the Christian school I was teaching at. I learned so much from those guys. And even though I came in with this sort of hostile me against you attitude in some regard and having these, you know, the classic, you know, free will theist versus determinist or free, you know, all the, all of those debates, I learned so much. And I saw there were so many weaknesses in my own interpretive lens that, uh, by the grace of God, I don't, I don't know how some people just seem like, and I don't, I don't get why this happens. Some people, it seems like when they brush up against that experience of having their their biases challenged, it hardens them. And for other people, they open up to the possibility and they explore it. I, I don't know why that is. I'm appreciative for people like you, though, that do that, because I know even in my own journey of, of wrestling with particular topics, and these would sometimes come up with some of my um, some of my peers. We'd talk about something, and you know, some of our reform guys would go, "Well, you know, Preston Sprinkle even believes that," <laughs> and it'd be like, <laughs> "Well, good." There's there, you know, it was like somebody on our team <laughs> who who like they affirm these other things that we hold to as true. Uh, they're 
you know, they're attempting to be biblically faithful, and it was it was really, really important. Uh, you, you, do you mind, like, uh, taking us through maybe just again, like, as a case study here, um, wow. what that process looked like for you on, I, I want to try to co- cover a couple of these, right? One of them was, which I've mentioned already, is the, the subject of hell or, or final punishment, because that's, uh, and it's, again, not that people need to agree with you on, uh, on your conclusion, but I think the process that you undertake in trying to sort and contest, sort out the truth, to, to fight for being uh, in keeping with the biblical witness is commendable to everybody, even if they go, well, I think the biblical witness, you know, I'd land in a slightly different place. Uh, I think there's something to be learned about the process, especially in your case, where I think you landed on something that probably didn't make you very popular in a lot of the circles that you were in. Yeah, that's been another one. Um, so long story short, Francis Chan and I wrote a book well back called Erasing Hell. And the question we were addressing in that book is, well, two questions. Number one, what does the Bible say about hell? And number two, is that place called hell, um, is it a place where people can be rescued out of? So it's really, you know, um, irreversible punishment versus um uh, some form of Christian universalism because it was in the wake of Rob Bell's Love Wins and, and so on. Now, in did the I, middle of that... Did anybody say farewell to you or <laughs> for Francis yeah, Chan? No. No, I've, I've been farewell. I've been farewell <laughs> okay. uh, quite a bit. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, that's a whole other story, but I, I, I do wonder, going back to our interpretation, because I have been very much tribalist, I wonder if that's why I've been so passionate about going where the text leads. Like I, I don't, there is no kind of overarching tribe that I belong in. Um, so I have felt freer in a sense to try to read the Bible with, without having a predetermined conclusion that I need to arrive at. But anyway, that's another yeah. hermeneutical story. But yeah, so uh, we, uh, we had two pages on the racing hell asking the question, what about annihilation versus eternal conscious torment? You know, are the people when they go to hell are they just destroyed, or uh, do they suffer forever and ever and ever? Now, I was shocked at how much evidence, um, biblical evidence, there was for annihilation. However, the main purpose of the book wasn't to argue annihilation versus eternal conscious torment. And I was like, man, I I still lean towards the traditional view, and Francis did too. And so we, in the book, you know, we say we we lean towards the traditional view. But since then, after the book was published, I kind of re- kept revisiting this question of annihilation versus eternal conscious torment. And I'll just, yeah, long story short, over the last six years, I have been just overwhelmed with the sheer volume of biblical evidence for the annihilation view and the weakness that I've seen uh, of from the pushbacks to that view from those who would hold to eternal conscious torment. Yeah, can you define maybe, define some of that terminology? Because maybe some people are tuning in, and again, like me, maybe this was the same for you. I I didn't know that there were other options (laughs) other other than, um, you know, kind of the caricature I described. If you don't sign off on the dotted doctrinal line, you're going to the Holocaust of all Holocausts for all eternity. Um, so I didn't even know that until I got into my early adult years that there were people that were 
saying, oh, oh, hang on, hang on, let's look at the scriptures here and, uh, you know, getting exposed to universalism, or if you want to, uh, you know, yeah. that's certainly one, or, you know, annihilationism, or what some might prefer to call, like, conditional, morta conditional immortality. So, yeah. so can you define at least, I think probably many people, just by the sheer title of the term, eternal conscious torment, can figure out what that one's about? Oh, yeah. What do you mean when you say, like, annihilation? So annihilation, it comes by various terms. Annihilation, terminal punishment, final punishment, conditional immortality. Um, yeah, and, and each, the, you know, I think the wording is important because kind of like why I don't like the term pacifist, it's it's people assume certain things about the, the view yeah. that's not, that I don't hold to. Um, so same thing, annihilation, all, all of the annihilation view is, whichever term you want to use to describe it, is that there is a place called hell, Um it's a very bad place <laughs> and God will send people when Jesus returns, all people will be resurrected. Unbelievers will be thrown into hell. Believers will go into the new creation. And when the non-believers are, are cast into hell, they will be destroyed. Like if they are, they are, they have actual human bodies that are thrown, that are, you know, punished. Um, and that punishment is death. I mean, it goes back to, you know, uh, well, John three sixteen, <laughs> that you know, if you believe in the Son of God, you won't perish. Um, right. Or Paul says, you know, the wages of sin is death. So the annihilation view says that death means death, like the cessation of life, like you're not going to exist forever and ever and ever in an ongoing, some kind of conscious state of living existence, but you will uh, that you will receive as the punishment for your sin, or or, or you can say the result of rejecting God, um, the the death sentence that, you know, Jesus bore for you, but you chose not to receive or so on. So, um, so yeah, a few myths about annihilation. It is not a denial of hell. That's just not, it's just not true. It's, it's talking about what happens. It's talking about the nature of hell, not whether hell exists. Um, annihilation is not the same as universalism. Universalism meaning everybody's going to be rescued out of hell at some point. In fact, the annihilation view by definition, rules out universalism. Right, the, right. The other view, eternal conscious torment, which is the most widespread popular view in evangelicalism, in the West at least, um, you know, would say, no, we're going to live forever and ever and ever in a conscious state of misery. Um, well, that, in a sense, that almost leaves the door open for universalism, because if you believe in a traditional view of hell, the eternal conscious torment, and you are, you know, very much opposed to universalism, then you, it's the burden of proof is on you to say that God will keep somebody in a conscious state of eternal misery and, and that person is either unable to repent and turn to God, or if he does repent and turn to God in that conscious state of misery, God will reject the repentance or God will sovereignly keep them in such a position that they are simply unable to repent or whatever. Like in a sense, the burden of proof rests on the eternal conscious torment person to describe God or even human nature in a certain way that I think is, is it can be challenging. <laughs> now the right. annihilation view says, no, when you're thrown into hell, you die, like you die. D death is the capital punishment is, you know, the what's in store for those who reject God. So by definition, they can't be rescued out of hell because they're, they're dead. Um, yeah. Yeah. So w w go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, go. Um, I was just—I mean, obviously, this particular subject we could unpack and go back and forth. My, my hope in bringing it up, though, is just to mainly not to, you know, pre present a polemic against anything or to have this be like a thesis 
paper that we just don't have the time for it, but mainly just to use it as a case study for how you went about the process right. of landing in something that isn't, you know, really popular in our circles, at least quite yet. I think there, there's, there's shifting and, and without, you know, getting into my own perspectives uh, on this, I think there's a, a massive shift happening in yeah. evangelical circles in a couple areas. And this is, this is one of those areas uh, where there are, are shifts happening. Um, I think one of the things that's interesting about like that subject compared to perhaps a couple of the others I still want to talk about is, you know, there's there wouldn't be necessarily, and I'm not arguing against you, but there wouldn't necessarily be a, a whole lot of tradition on your side for the, that oh, position, yeah. right? I mean, you're really going hardcore sola scripture <laughs> on that because there's admittedly a survey of church history would go well that's that's certainly not been uh the predominant position that Christians have held for 2000 years in fact you know it's you know it might even have equal radio time with universalism or or at least some sort of hopeful universalism yeah. like by like Gregory of Nyssa or yeah. Jurgen Moltmann or you know um, so how, without that, um, necessarily that, that strength, you know, is it, I guess, is this, is this one of the, the strengths or weaknesses of the way that Protestant evangelicals go through an epistemological process of finding the truth? Because it, we go solo, you know, put scripture up on the, the top ladder, right? Like this is, this is the most important thing, um, but what happens when we do have uh, maybe tradition, uh, voices in the church's past that go, no, you're, you're wrong? Getting back to the early, even the earlier point, we talked about just jokingly about, you know, heresy. Well, yeah. you know, there, we can't even, seems inconsistent to go, well, we can't explore that because it's heretical, but at the same time, we don't value tradition. <laughs> yeah, that's good. So let me just jump in real quick with the yeah. tradition on annihilation. Um, prior to Augustine, there was a lot of diversity. I mean, universalism, annihilation, and right. eternal conscious torment were kind of all available options, and you can find support for all three. Now, granted, they didn't have long dialogues specifically on this question, but you see yeah, there other things, other things they seem <laughs> to be arguing about. Yeah, <laughs> like not getting their head chopped off, but yeah. Um, uh, I mean, you have evidence in people like Irenaeus and 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 others, that, you know, that seem to very much support annihilation. So it really is from Augustine onward. And if you look at Augustine, did did uh, you know directly wrestle with the question? But the thing is, it seems rather clear, and I would love to be corrected on this. It seems rather clear that when Augustine asked the question about, you know eternal conscious torment versus annihilation. He came at that question with the presupposition that the soul is intrinsically right. immoral, right. immortal, which he borrowed from Neoplatonism, which, which I don't think really you can support. Yeah. No, I don't, I, I, you know, if, if you can come at it, I think there's people, uh, well-read, intelligent, thoughtful, honest people that can land in different positions on, sure, on, sure. on this subject, you know, and they're still, following Jesus and they still think, boy, I'm, I'm going to the scriptures because this, this is, this is the place where I, I derive my, my normative 
views on faith and doctrine and how to live in the world can land in different spots. One thing I have a hard time seeing, because it seems pretty explicit from Genesis, humans are not inherently immortal, are they? Like, that's that's why they're kept from the tree of life, (laughs) is because... And we don't need to get into how to how to read, uh, you know, the the first two Genesis creation stories today. That would be another yeah. another podcast. We've got a lot of podcasts that we're scheduling here, Preston. I hope you got time in your calendar. <laughs> but it seems pretty clear. Like, no, humans are inherently, you know, by nature they are mortal, right? Yeah. That, you know, this eternality of the soul is doesn't make it wrong just because it's a greek idea that's that i mean again god could be working through culture just as he does in many ways to to reveal just like he did to the hebrews um but that doesn't seem to be like a biblical position it's not and and even people who hold to a traditional view of hell at least the more scholarly types like a d.a carson or others would, would acknowledge that point now some well-known preachers and pastors you know they um I don't know if they're as as careful with that, but yeah, it's it, see. I mean, it's, I know we're not supposed to say this, but it's really clear in Scripture that God alone possesses immortality. That right. humans are mortal. The divine human contrast is one is mortal, one is immortal, and God grants immortality to those who are in Christ through the resurrection. That's a, immortality right. is a gift given to humanity through the resurrection. So if you don't through union, through union with Christ, which brings about like again, not to get too nerdy, but we always like to throw a few nerdy nuggets out there for those that like to do the deep dive. But it's like through a real ontological union with Christ, yeah. right? We're not just talking about union as a, a concept. That's that's the way humans become participants in uh you know, the divine, in, nature. In out. The divine nature. That's Peter, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's so it, those who are swept up in Christ, who participate in Christ, are given immortality. If you're not in Christ, then you're left up to your mortality, which is why some annihilationists would say use the phrase conditional immortality to describe their view, saying hmm. unless you participate in Jesus, you can't live forever. I mean, you, I guess you could argue right. that God is going to, you know, cause you to live forever. And then that's what, you know, people who hold to the traditional view would have to say, but we are not intrinsically, you know, indestructible forever, but that's going back to Augustine. And then we could leave this alone, but um, Augustine seemed to come at the question, annihilation versus ECT with the assumption that annihilation isn't possible because he believed the soul has to live forever. Right. So to him, it wasn't even an option. So I'm not too, I, so the, the, the historical weight is clearly against or on the side of the traditional view. And th- quite honestly, that's what took me several years to really become secure in my annihilation beliefs. <laughs> because I, I, I'm like, man, the weight of tradition is here, and I want to respect that. But mm. I can kind of pinpoint why that tradition was so widespread. It really does yeah. ultimately come down almost almost exclusively to Augustine. Like everybody else has basically accepted wow. Augustine's view. So. I, mean, I, th- I think you've—, I think you've either intentionally or unintentionally pinpointed it's, it's exactly the kind of thing that I'm, I'm hoping to give people as like a teachable moment here. What you just said was that you were able to pinpoint, at least from your perspective, a, a specific point in history where things possibly went awry, right? Yeah. Uh, but that was through an engagement with tradition. I mean, that's part really of of the Reformation spirit, right? Is to go, 
boy, there are things that fallible human beings have gotten wrong throughout the ages, and it's on us to try to get as close as we can to the location of inspiration, which obviously, theologically, I should say, not obviously, but theologically, God himself is the location of inspiration by which he vests that through, he vests a the inspiration into human authors in the scripture. So we, we're trying to get close to that as we can, but we, we do have to go through a bit of church history, and I think it can be helpful as people do that stuff, and they go, boy, the scriptures seem like they're saying this, but all of these voices are saying differently. Is there a particular place where, is it possible things went awry? Were there other voices before this? Like, you know, this, uh, the next episode I'm interviewing, uh, I don't know if you know Matthew J. Thomas at all. He wrote... Uh, he's from Oxford or graduated from Oxford, PhD, and he just wrote a, a brilliant book, Paul, uh, Paul, and the works of the law in, in the second century reception or something like that. I'm butchering oh, his, I'm wow. butchering his title, but anyways, he's explores the difference between like Calvin and Luther's understanding of works of the law and what late end of first century, early, you know, second century church fathers did. And it's just interesting because you're able to identify some of these differences. It's helpful. It seems like one of the things that's difficult with this subject versus, for example, violence, nonviolence, and then sexuality, which I do want to, if we have time, I, I still would love to explore a little bit. Um, you can't really, there's not much you can do about hell to engage with it from a, an experience perspective, right? You know, if we're going to use that Wesleyan quadrilateral scripture tradition reason experience, uh, we can have we can certainly engage reason. I mean, we do that even when we engage the scriptures. Uh, it's hard to say experience, right? I, I mean, I don't, well, I don't know I, about you. I yeah. would push the experience a little bit. Just, I mean, I don't know if this is qualified with what Les, Wesley was getting up, but like the experience of being raised in a culture where we assume that hell meant eternal conscious torment. And if you don't believe that, then you don't believe in the Bible. You don't believe in God. You hate the Bible. Yeah. Um, that, that that kind of environment where you, you you can't even raise the question whether this is this is, is accurate or not. I mean, yeah. it's written in the traditional view is written into a lot of our doctrinal statements without people really even know. It's just kind of there, like it's it's in the airy breeze. So I think yeah. that, I don't know would that qualify. Well, I don't think I, the the example I always use is uh, like snake handlers, right? Yeah. Um, how would how would the quadrilateral or the evangelical method help snake handlers come to a better position or a better understanding of the truth? Well, they've got that text in Mark, which, you know, some people even debate <laughs> whether or not that should be in there. Uh, so they're going like sola scripture, sola scripture, it's right there. They don't engage with tradition because if they did, they'd see, well, nobody was handling snakes as a result of this text. Um, <laughs> if, if they want to just throw out reason and experience, like their own experience of it is that wow, there's a, plenty of times where people are dancing with snakes. And if you don't know what that is, like Google, or maybe you shouldn't Google it. <laughs> you know, Pente Pentecostal churches that, that, that read the, the end of, you know, the uh, end, end of Mark, and you'll be able to drink poison and won't har harm, harm you. You'll handle serpents and scorpions, et cetera, et cetera. So they dance with them in church as a sign of, you know, the kingdom being here and now. Did you really not know what that is? I or knew you... that, that was it. I knew okay. that existed out there somewhere, yeah. but yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like you, you know, you go down in the deep south, especially Pen old, you know, Pentecostal churches. It's a, it's a like a, a demonstration of a sort of you know, 
a realized ex- eschatology, right? The kingdom is here now, and this is how we dememonstrate it. But do people get you know, hit th- a lot, or is that yes. really <laughs> No, I mean, well, sometimes it works, but I think you know, again, this is where we need to engage reason and experience. There's also plenty of times experientially where it doesn't work and people die handling venomous snakes in these services. And and uh, without actually like engaging their experience with, and I know there's some danger there, but this is why to me, it seems like we need a, a rubric that allows us to have this healthy tension where our experiences go, well, and that's why I'm saying for a subject like Final Punishment, none of us have experience of that unless you, you know, right, okay, yeah, unless yeah. you want to read, you know, you take these books of people's experiences when they die. And I, I don't know if that would be a trustworthy source. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed this conversation uh, that I had with Preston Sprinkle. We're definitely going to do it again at some point in the near future. There was so much more that we wanted to talk about, but uh, this was... This was more than enough for one episode, though I do I do want to share with you guys. Um, I, I asked Preston to to explain a little bit uh, about what he's doing as the president of the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, and, and this is what he had to say about it. Yeah, so I, I'm the president of the center. We started uh, just over two years ago, and our mission is we want to help. Uh, Christian leaders to engage questions about faith, sexuality, and gender with theological faithfulness and courageous love. So we want to help, you know, the the you know whether you're a church leader, a ministry leader, uh, you work for a, a campus ministry, whatever. I mean, these questions are coming up just every minute of every day, uh, and it's not slowing down. And so we want to help people navigate the theological questions, the ethical questions, the practical pastoral questions, and even you know some of the scientific questions that come up, especially around gender. So that's, yeah, that's what we do. We have a website, centerforfaith.com, which has a bunch of uh, resources you can check out and blogs and videos and curriculum and, and everything. I'm so thankful for what you're doing. Preston, can we find some time together to uh, to pick up maybe a part two to this conversation? There's so much more I think I'd love to unpack <laughs> with you. Ben, yeah, I would love to. Awesome. Awesome. Questions about faith, sexuality, and gender are among the most pressing ethical questions facing the church and Christian leaders today. This is why I'm so excited to tell you about the Grace Truth Learning Experience, the highly acclaimed small group material produced by the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. That's the nonprofit center that uh, Preston is the president of, and he's got a great board of people and team that work with him at the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. Grace Truth 1.0 and 2.0 is a 10-week small group learning experience that helps Christians, churches, and community groups to engage the conversation about homosexuality and LGBTQ-related questions with theological faithfulness and courageous love. If you're interested in engaging this conversation with other Christians, then the Grace Truth Learning Experience is a perfect place to begin. I'm going to include links in the description to this podcast for all of Preston's website, his personal website, and also where you can find out more about the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. I also want to invite you, if uh, you feel like these sorts of conversations are helpful, I would invite you to become a patron supporter today on my Patreon page. Uh, we're looking to try to hit a, a goal of 300 supporters to uh, take this podcast and the other videos and materials I'm, I'm producing uh, to the next level in this next year. So 
Become a Patreon supporter today. That link is also in the description. Thanks, guys, for listening to Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning making. And as always, I welcome your conversations and questions. Reach out to me on Twitter or leave a comment in the comment section at the appropriate blog. Blog? What year is this podcast platform of your choice? 